This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. One day you may be able to try out a zip line at Denver International Airport or a climbing wall. There's some of the ideas being considered for a massive renovation plan for Denver International Airport's Jeppesen Terminal. That's the main building with the white peaks before you get on the train to the other terminals. Last week, Denver City Council gave the go-ahead to start discussions on the plan. Denver Post reporter John Murray joins us in the studio. Welcome. Thank you. You've been covering these recent developments. Uh, If the project moves forward, what will the new terminal look like? Well, so there will be a lot of things that that, uh, travelers and anybody else who goes to the airport notices. The the main thing is that security will look a lot different. They would move the security checkpoints that are now on the the lower floor of the, the big terminal up to the kind of north end on the ticketing level so that you would check in. Um, on one end, on the south end of the upper level, and then just walk to the north end on either side, and the uh, security checkpoints would be right there. And it would also be reconfigured so that it's kind of more up to post-9-11 standards. Right now it's very squeezed into the the areas downstairs. They'd um, have more of a flow to it, more space to to have more lines, and hopefully that would expand the capacity and and speed up the, the checkpoint experience. And there'd be a lot of shopping on the main level. Correct? Yeah, so moving the security out of there, um, the the argument from DIA officials um, is that it would free up a lot of space to kind of restore a lot of what was in the terminal or, or the, I guess, idea of the terminal originally, which is to have kind of a big gathering space down there. There used to be a lot more of a kind of a plaza area down there before it was overtaken by security uh, post 9-11. And so they'd have more shops, more restaurants, more concessions. Now, the the other side of that is that means more revenue for the airport, too. They make a lot of money off of concessions. And then there would also, now that the hotel and the, the train have has a lot of people entering from the south end of the terminal on the lower level, there would be more of a public plaza down there. And um, just briefly, why a zip line? So th- they want to make it a, uh, a distinctly Colorado experience. So I don't know if there'll be a zip line, but that's one of the ideas that was brought up to the council committee last week. Zip line, a climbing wall, other things that kind of scream out right when you get into the terminal that you're in Colorado. And um, the shops would be a train ride away from the gates. And I wonder if travelers would really want to shop that far away from their gates where they're trying to leave. You know, travelers that are trying to get to their planes, they may be a little bit more pressed for time. I don't know if they would, would do that necessarily. They'd have that option. It may be more geared towards those who are, who are coming into the airport. They may not – not as many are going to be waiting for a car that's picking them up as, as in the past now that there's the train option. So they may have a little bit more time to linger in the terminal, get their bearings in Colorado, go to shops. I think that might be the idea behind it. And then also to make it more of a, a kind of – you know, the train goes to Union Station. It makes it more of a counterpart to Union Station. At least that's the idea of the, the renovation. So that's a place to gather. And is the idea that um, folks who aren't traveling might come and destination shop there? I think there's some of that idea. There's probably some skepticism from your listeners about that because who wants to just go to the airport if you're not taking a flight? But I think there might be some some folks who might be more geared to that. Or if they're staying at the the DI hotel, they may come out and and hang out in the terminal. And um, why is the project moving forward now? Um, so they've just finished up with the, the massive transit center and Weston Hotel project. So they've kind of got that plate cleared. 
and DIA officials, Kim Day is the CEO. She was brought in to think big about the airport. Um, and this is kind of the next big thing they decided they want to take on. So this has been in the, the works for a couple of years now. Now they've got a preferred uh, partner. And it's a, it is a privatization deal. It's a, a public partner, public-private partnership um, so it, they've got the partner now, now they're going to head into full negotiations. And so that's what the council is going to be considering in the next week for final approval. And how does the payment work? Uh, how do mm-hmm. you pay for it exactly with, uh, this public private partnership? Well, the details are what they're going to be working out, but the basic idea is that instead of it being a fully public project where DIA would borrow money for this hundreds of millions of dollars costing project, a um, partner, um, Ferruvial Airports, is out of Spain. They come in with their their kind of equity investors. They would front most of the money through their um, lenders, and then DIA would put up a, a certain amount that will be negotiated. Um, and then that's how the project would be paid for. And then paying off it, the uh, concession revenue that would go up because of the new um, restaurants and new retail and and all these new offerings that make money for the airport, they would split that money with this partner that's building it. That would pay off the project as well as provide a share of revenue for the airport going forward. Um, Now, we've seen a retired NBA star, Magic Johnson. He's helped pitch the plan to Denver, the Denver City Council. Where does he fit into all of this? Well, they, he comes in. He's since um, ending his NBA career, he's become a fairly successful investor and businessman. He's got a number of Starbucks in the Denver area, actually, and he uh, is involved in, in airport uh, partnerships, kind of nationally at LAX in Los Angeles, and then in, in uh, the American Airlines Admirals Clubs. They provide services for that too through one of his companies. He comes in as um, somebody who's got this equity fund um, and and partners with the uh, the Spanish company, Ferruvial, and uh, Saunders Group, which is, is locally based as kind of the main partners. So he he's basically a money guy. But he also, and this was pretty clear at the committee last week, he brings, um, A, a little bit of star power, and then B, one of the big issues at the airport, always in contracting, has been minority contracting and involvement of minority mm-hmm. and, and women-owned companies. And he kind of brings this emphasis on this, telling the council kind of preemptively last week, hey, I'm going to – I'm in your court here. I'm going to help make sure that there's participation by these minority-owned companies here. And when would the renovation start? They're aiming to finish this um, partnership negotiation, which will produce this hundreds-of-page document uh, contract by this spring. They've got about six months to do that um, once they get the, the council green light probably next week. And then um, from there, um, then they start to, to make do design work on the project, all that stuff. It's probably not going to be until end of next year or the year after that, that the full construction uh, begins. But this is the kind of start of the um, you know, more noticeable parts of the process. And when could we see a finished product? They haven't um, put a, uh, a firm endpoint on that. It's going to be a, a few years uh, before it's finished. And there's going to be certainly a lot for travelers to, to kind of put up with as far as, as the project going on in the terminal as it gets phased in. John, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. John Murray is the City Hall reporter for the Denver Post. So lots of potential changes for DIA. Uh, Let's turn to the new train to the airport, the University of Colorado A-Line. Since its opening in April, the train hasn't been very reliable. Delays have led riders to miss flights and have caused other headaches. We wanted to find out the reasons behind those problems, so we asked CPR's Michael Sackis to do some digging. She spoke with my colleague, Nathan Heffel. 
Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. The University of Colorado A-Line between Denver's Union Station and DIA should take around 37 minutes with trains running every 15 minutes during the day. However, as CPR has reported, there have been numerous delays. Have they all been due to one thing, Michael? No, it's actually been a series of issues. For instance, according to RTD spokesman Scott Reed, the train experienced power failure on both August 10th and 11th due to what he called an equipment malfunction. In essence, the overhead wires that hold the train's power lines in place sag in extreme temperatures. One of the antenna-like contraptions that connects the train to the power line above it snagged it, which broke both the wire and the antenna. Hmm. Riders actually posted photos to Twitter of the broken piece hanging down in front of one of the train's windows. Both malfunctions happened about a mile and a half from each other near the 61st and Pena Boulevard station. Separate wires, separate days. What's RTD doing to fix the problem? The agency says the broken trains are being repaired and each hanger wire is being aggressively checked to see which ones need to be repositioned or replaced. What have been some of the other reasons that the train has been delayed? RTD reported on August 17th there were 15 to 30 minute delays in both directions because gates at a number of road crossings were going down, but there was no train approaching. RTD continues to staff each crossing with a guard to monitor for that. And in mid-May, lengthy delays were caused by phase breaks. Phase breaks. Explain that to me. Yeah. Phase break is the zone between two power stations where the train is not connected to a live wire. It's there to keep the train from receiving too much power at any one time. Before the delays, the brakes were around 300 feet long, and that was problematic. So RTD chose to take the brakes down to 30 feet to, quote, dramatically reduce the chances of a similar delay occurring again. So the trains didn't have enough speed to make it through those 300-foot phase breaks, and that's what caused those delays. Michael, we've touched on a few of the issues that have caused delays, but there have also been lightning strikes, more snagging of wires, power loss due to repairs, and a computer guidance system that went on the fritz. I've even seen tweets asking for refunds. Is that something RTD is thinking of doing? Short answer is no. Uh, RTD says they're just like taxi cab companies, limo services, super shuttle, or your next door neighbor, and that they'll not guarantee travel times. Uh, but RTD does point out that since the line opened in April, the train has been hovering around 90% on time. You've spoken with RTD, which oversees the train, but what about the public-private partnership that actually built the line, Denver Transit Partners? Have you reached out to them? I, I did. I reached out to DTP, but according to them, the current agreement with RTD is that all questions for now get directed RTD's way. Okay, so for the time being, they're not talking, but does RTD have a plan uh, of action with Denver Transit Partners if these delays continue to happen? RTD's Scott Reed explained that their contract with DTP includes specific milestones that need to be reached for DTP to receive their full payment. Otherwise, there are penalties. And he didn't go into specifics, but he did say there have been some penalties for not meeting all the requirements. All right, Michael, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's CPR's Michael Elizabeth Sackis speaking with my colleague Nathan Heffel. Just ahead, how Colorado's changing demographics could be shifting the state's political landscape. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Hillary Clinton is leading in the polls in Colorado, and that's not surprising to reporter Asma Khalid. She covers demographics and the election for NPR and was in Colorado reporting last week. She joins me in the studio. Asma, thanks for being here. No problem. Happy to be here. 
What was the main question you wanted to answer when you came to Colorado? So I spent a lot of time looking at both exit polls and census data to try to figure out different trends. And one thing that was very interesting to me in sort of the the slew of polling that I had seen after the Republican and the Democratic conventions was a common theme that Hillary Clinton seemed to be winning white college-educated voters. And the reason that that's interesting to me is this is a group, white college-educated voters, that have historically, for decades, in fact, voted Republican, according to the exit polls that we've seen. Uh, I know that may come as a surprise to some folks, and that's partly because if you look at people with postgrad degrees in the last elections, they tilted a little bit more towards Barack Obama. But if we look at overall white college-educated voters as a block, for all the exit polls that we could go back, as far as we could go back, they seem to support a Republican candidate. So the fact that they could be tilting towards Hillary Clinton would be really unusual. And so I looked at data from the Census Bureau to see which state had the largest share of white college educated voters over, you know, a five-year estimate. We went through and we ranked them all, (laughs) and Colorado is the state on top. Where did your reporting take you while you were here? Uh, Where did you go to kind of find this demographic and figure out what was happening? So I went to places like the Lincoln Day Dinner in Colorado Springs, where I would find registered Republicans. And then I went to Clinton campaign events, where I would find registered Democrats. But then I also wanted to hear from folks who are not showing up at these partisan events, you know, people who either may be registered Republican, Democrat, or unaffiliated. And so I went to young professionals' happy hours. I went, you know, to different uh, coffee shops, places where I could meet some folks like this. So one couple that was really interesting to me uh, are Amanda and Brendan. They live in Highlands Ranch. very familiar, I'm sure, to most of your listeners around here. Suburban and, area. Yes, exactly. Uh, a fairly affluent area as well. And they both are registered Republicans. They uh, identify as Mormon and told me that one of their hesitations this year with Donald Trump is the way that he talks or the rhetoric that he brings about. But Brendan also mentioned to me one of the, the big takeaways for him, he is a lawyer, went to Columbia Law School, is he really does value education. And he said one of the takeaways for him is not only the way that Donald Trump talks, but some of the, the stories, whether they be rumors or not, about whether Donald Trump has the attention span to sort of read a long-form book. And Brendan acknowledged that maybe that's a, a random way to judge a presidential candidate, but it was very interesting to me that these were character traits that they noticed. Both husband and wife do not intend to vote for Donald Trump despite being registered Republicans. Brendan says that he very, very reluctantly would likely support Hillary Clinton if the election were tomorrow. His wife still isn't exactly sure what to do. But for them, it was temperament. And I I think this is a thing that I heard a lot from a number of the college-educated voters I talked to, was they did not care for the divisiveness. They didn't care for how Donald Trump seemed to single out uh, different racial, ethnic, or religious groups. And for them, that was very hard to move beyond that. But that being said, I should say very clearly that a number of the unaffiliated and registered Republicans I talked to are not necessarily moving over to Hillary Clinton in in droves. I met a number of people who told me that they really, you know, really despise Donald Trump's tenor, the way he talks. But they also have a lot of questions about Hillary Clinton's trust, particularly around the email Mm -hmm. issue. And so they are considering uh, Gary Johnson. And Gary Johnson's the libertarian candidate. Did you hear from folks who had voted for years and years and were deciding not to vote at all? Or was it more that they were trying to make a decision about who to vote for? I think it's the latter. I heard more from people trying to figure out what to do. Uh, I will say that I focused a lot 
on trying to hear from sort of a younger to middle-aged demographic, so either Gen Xers or millennials. So this is a state with a lot of millennials. What is their tendency when it comes to voting in elections? That's an excellent question. And I think it's really hard to predict at this point, right? Because the oldest batch of millennials are people who cast their first vote for president in 2004. And then the youngest batch of millennials are people who theoretically are casting their first ballot for president in this uh, this election this November. The older batch of millennials, I will say, uh, seems to be a little bit more pragmatic. I heard time and again a willingness to support Hillary Clinton, regardless of whether they liked or supported Bernie Sanders during the primary season. Uh, I was very hard pressed, to be honest, in the state, particularly among the college educated batch of millennials to hear of support for Donald Trump. Uh, These are from very ardent Republicans who told me that they were either unsure at this point or, you know, considering Gary Johnson. Then with college educated white voters overall, you know, including millennials, do you think they'd stick with Democrats after this election um, and even go down the ballot and vote for other Democrats? Or is this just a temporary Trump thing? Is it a one off? Right. So I think that it kind of depends which subset of white college educated voters we're talking about. For Brendan, that, you know, a gentleman I mentioned out in Highlands Ranch, the dream candidate would be Paul Ryan. And if Paul Ryan runs in 2020, he said, you know, he would go out and volunteer for him. So for Brendan, no, I don't think that that this is a lifelong trend. He very much identifies as being Republican. But in this election cycle, he's looking at his two uh, major choices, he says, which are Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. And uh, at this point, says he would likely lean towards Hillary Clinton. Among that that subset of younger voters, millennials, I heard kind of three things time and again from them that make me wonder how they will vote in the long term. One is uh, they do not seem to care for the Republican Party's focus on social issues. Another is that they do not care for the heavy focus, they said, uh, on religion at times and a desire to court evangelical voters. And the other thing that was very interesting to me is some voters mentioned that they really felt that there should be some push for immigration reform. And this I heard from white college-educated voters who identify as Republican. Were there issues that uh, you heard again and again from folks that they wished the candidates were talking about more in this election? I want to say probably the most consistent theme I heard from people was a frustration that the candidates are not talking more about issues or that the media, they say, does not focus enough on what issues are being discussed at the table. I heard a lot of focus on the economy, but I know that's a really big umbrella issue. Um, One gentleman told me that he was really surprised he's a registered Republican, that this election cycle, both the Republican and the Democratic candidate are opposed to the Trans-Pacific Partnership, Mm -hmm. are opposed to TPP. So as a guy, he says, who supports free trade, he's looking at both candidates and saying, hey, they're they're both on the same side on this issue. And that was very surprising to him. Interesting. I noticed as part of NPR's election analysis that states with the highest percentage of white college-educated voters, um, Colorado is the only one that isn't solidly Democratic. Um, in other words, most of the ones that are at the top of the list, Maryland, Massachusetts, uh, California, are solidly Democratic. Colorado just leans Democratic. Why is that? I don't know for certain. 
But if I had to hypothesize, I would say that Colorado has been a magnet for migration. I would say that some of these states, Massachusetts in particular, Connecticut, have had a more stable population base, uh, you know, with Colorado attracting so many people to the state in recent years. And with those people who are moving to the state more likely to have a bachelor's degree. I mean, my guess, and this is somewhat of a hypothesis, is that the very people who are moving into the state are changing the demographic electorate and, and changing the picture of what an average Coloradan voter looks like. And you focused on white college-educated voters. So much attention um, in this election has been made in the growth of Latino voters in Colorado in particular. And we found that with Latino voters, uh, campaigns and candidates are more and more seeing the subtleties in that electorate, you know, separating out business owners, moms, college students. Are campaigns looking at this group of college-educated white people as one big electorate or in chunks? That's a very good question. I actually asked the Clinton campaign if this is a targeted group for them. From my understanding, it is not a targeted demographic for the campaigns. And I think part of that is just four years ago, Mitt Romney won this group by about 14 percentage points in the last Mm. election. So the sheer fact that Hillary Clinton could potentially win this demographic is a very new idea. So Colorado, recent years, it's been seen as a swing state. At what point is it no longer a swing state? Oh, gosh, I don't know. I mean, the question is, how many election cycles does it take? What is interesting to me about Colorado, if I can compare it for a sec with some of the other battleground states that I visited, is that Colorado seems to have gone from a very, very purple state to a lean, even a likely blue state very rapidly. I mean, if you have thousands of people moving to the state every year who are likely younger, more educated, and more likely to identify as being a racial minority, those are all key components potentially of a new Democratic base. But I will say, look, I also think the polls right now in Colorado give Hillary Clinton quite a sizable advantage. Uh, But analysts I talk to tell me that they think that 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 lead will narrow. And it's important to point out that several members of Colorado's congressional delegation are Republican. Cory Gardner beat out a longtime Democrat. So there are many folks in the state that vote Republican. That's true. To me, what's really interesting about Colorado, again, it's probably old news to you all, but the the large number of unaffiliated voters. And I met one gentleman in uh, Colorado Springs who very proudly told me that he voted uh, for the Democratic governor, and then he went on to vote for the Republican mayor of Colorado Springs, and that he likes this idea because he says that he looks at every election and it's, it's a sale. He feels like the candidates need to sell themselves to him, and whoever makes the better pitch is who he'll vote for. Asma, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Asma Khalid covers demographics and the 2016 election for NPR. She was in Denver last week reporting and stopped by to talk with us. Coming up, a man who's traveled the world chasing eclipses and his advice for how to watch the next one. This is CPR's Colorado Matters. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. At just about the same time next year, on August 21st, 2017, a total solar eclipse will sweep across the United States. It'll be the first to cross the continental U.S. since 1979. And Coloradans won't have to go that far to experience it. The center will pass right over Wyoming. Michael Eisner of Boulder has spent years traveling the globe to witness eclipses. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you. You see my T-shirt? I made this T-shirt. This 
uh, acknowledges my 11 total solar eclipse Oh, trips. so it has all the countries that you've been to. Yeah, it has wow. all the countries. Excellent. So fun because the eclipses are not always where we are. I have to go to them. That's where the shadow falls across the landscape of planet Earth, this little dot that comes is the result of the moon getting in the way of the sun. Right. And I want to correct one thing that you said before. You said not just since 1979 as it crossed the United States. It actually coast to coast last traversed America in 1918. Okay. 99 years ago since we will have an eclipse that is similar to the one that we're going to have next year. Wow. Okay. So you've seen 12 total eclipses since 1979. Yeah. Um, the next eclipse will be your 13th. You've been to places like Egypt, China, Serbia, Zimbabwe, as your shirt attests. <laughs> and uh, what motivates you to do this? Oh, you know what? This is one of those grand natural phenomenas that happens on this planet that may just be the most rare thing that anyone could ever imagine having happened to a single human being, right? If we have an infinite number of planets all across this infinite universe, as we're now discovering almost every star has a planet or a planetary system, what you have to have, the combination of the math and physics that you have to have to have a total solar eclipse where the sun and the moon appear to be the same size in the sky because the moon is 400 times closer than the sun mm. and the sun is 400 times in diameter larger than the moon. That mathematics allows you to have a perfect fit where the sun and the moon fit right over each other for just a couple of minutes. You then have to add to that equation a sentient creature mm -hmm. like me mm -hmm. who can predict where to be exactly to watch this thing. It's just a thrill. I, I can't describe to you the, the, what happens to me, the emotionally what happens to me. I just get recharged, plugged in again every single time I attend one of these great phenomena and stand in that shadow. I have about 35 minutes of shadow time now in my life. And you have to be very specific, right, about where you go. It's not that easy. You have to be specific because there's this dot that that goes across the the landscape of the earth, and you have to be right in the middle of that, right? So, for instance, right here in Colorado, we're going to be really good. It's going to be a 95% partial eclipse. But don't be fooled by the fact that it's 95%, because the difference between 95% and 100% when it comes to partial versus total eclipses is 10,000%. Mm -hmm. The partial mm -hmm. eclipse that we will have here in Colorado will be 50,000 times brighter than the dead darkness that we're going to have, Wyoming, Nebraska, wherever it is along this 10,000-mile line that goes from the start of the eclipse to the end of the eclipse, all the way across America. Starts in the Pacific Northwest, Oregon, goes to, in, to Idaho, across to Wyoming, Nebraska, Missouri, Kentucky, Tennessee, Georgia, mm. and then down into the Carolinas. And you will be in Wyoming, yeah, at a secret location. You won't reveal it? Well, okay. All okay. Right. All right. All right. Where all right. will you be? We're going to be in the Tetons. Okay. And I've rented an RV, and I have these hosts that have hosted me all across the world when I've done these travels uh, from Thailand and Hungary and Zimbabwe, and I've had these couch surfing hosts. 
and they pick me up and we go to the eclipse together and I invest myself with them like a year out. And I've invited them all to come join me. And I've got an RV and we're going to all pile in that with friends and relatives and off we go to the Tetons. But anyone in Colorado can go anywhere. You can go up to as long as you're on center line. Let me tell you that the right place to be for a total solar eclipse is where there's no clouds. Mm. Okay, well, that makes sense, right? Totally right. Um, will this be the least far you've had to travel uh, to see an eclipse because it's yeah. in Wyoming and you live in Boulder? Yeah, exactly. I think our eclipse in China, I think, was 9,000 miles away. I did one down in Australia. There was, you know, whatever it is on the other side of the earth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to go and keep hunting these things wherever they are. Um, in 2018, Chile and Argentina, 2019 or 20, it's back in Chile and Argentina, and we won't have another total solar eclipse in the United States. Remember, it's been 38 years mm-hmm, mm-hmm. since we've had one. We won't have another one for until 24. So it's whatever that is, seven, eight years. And you mentioned this isn't exactly a total solar eclipse. This is really defined as a partial solar eclipse. Here in Colorado. Right. But where we will go up in Wyoming or Nebraska, wherever people are, and what we refer to as center line. Mm-hmm. So center line is 10,000 miles long and only 100 miles wide. You need to be in the center of center line because that's when the Earth aligns with the moon and the sun perfectly to give you the longest duration eclipse. And we're going to have about 2 minutes, 20 seconds, 2 minutes, 30 seconds if we just go from Colorado directly up. Right. So you don't want to stay in Colorado. You kind of want to follow you, kind of figure out where you are and follow you. Don't follow me. Go where there's no clouds. I expect to have no clouds. I am batting uh, 900%. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I've had a few shady moments. Last year in Indonesia, we had some clouds move in. They parted right at totality. But that totality, again, lasts for only two minutes and a half or so. And so that is when you make your first contact. The moon encroaches on the sun and you have a little indentation. You have to wear those glasses. Mm-hmm. Everybody has to wear those glasses. The special... And they protect you. That's right. From... That's right. But If you're in Colorado, you have to wear the glasses all the time and you don't get to see Mercury and Venus and Mars and Jupiter and stars in the sky. You don't get to see this landscape go completely black and it become nighttime in the middle of the day. And the eclipse is going to be around high noon. Mm. So you get none of that when you're in a partial eclipse. Is it great? Sure, it's great. Walk out your door, get your glasses. But why be so close and not get in the car and run up to Casper or go to Nebraska above North Platte and be right on center line? And when you're there, you will get an experience that is one of the most outrageous things you can ever possibly imagine seeing. 20 degree temperature change. Mm. The birds get quiet. The landscape has this vivid shadowing that takes place on it. And just before totality, you have the slate green light that occurs. And the last thing that happens before you go into totality is a thing called the diamond ring effect. Mm -hmm. It's where the little valley on the moon will allow the last little ray of sunlight to come through. And it creates this beautiful diamond ring effect. 
none of this you can get by being in a partial partial eclipse. You need and to be in total. You said it was hard to describe the, you know, feeling you get, but you just described it beautifully. I think it makes anyone want to travel with you. As best as an oration can be. Uh-huh. But to experience it yourself, I can't make people's hair rise on their arms, but the eclipse certainly can. It is the most... I th- I think it is probably the grandest possible natural phenomena that we can experience that isn't some devastation. It isn't a tsunami. It isn't some hurricane that kills people and destroys things. It's this magnificent alignment on this planet that may, just may, be unique to us given all of the planets and all of the universe and all of the moons. This may be the one place where you could be in all the universe where you could experience a total solar eclipse just like this. And why is that, just briefly? Because you have to have the combination of all of these things that fit together. First of all, not all moons are round. Moons are chunks of rock. Mars has two giant asteroids. We have a round moon. We only have one of them, but many planets have many moons. So you have to be on a planet that is welcoming to some kind of a creature that has to have eyes or some sensory devices to look up a sentient creature that can see and experience what this thing is like. So I'm just, I'm just being very an arrogant Earthling, and saying that we're the only ones. Uh, Thanks so much for being with us. So happy to be here. Michael Eisner has witnessed 12 full solar eclipses. His 13th will take place on August 21st, 2017. You can find his time-lapse video of the eclipse in Indonesia earlier this year and a link with all the details of the 2017 U.S. solar eclipse at cprnews.org. Coming up, tracing the lives of seven children who survived Hurricane Katrina. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Flooding has damaged tens of thousands of homes in Louisiana this month. It's a reminder of the damage caused by Hurricane Katrina and survivors like Sierra. She was 11 when Katrina hit, and she remembers the screams, the rising water, and how dark it was at night. Those descriptions are from a new book that follows seven young victims and has new findings about how young people cope in disaster. Co-authors Laurie Peake and Alice Fothergill studied together at the University of Colorado Boulder. Peake now runs CSU's Center for Disaster and Risk Analysis. The book, Children of Katrina, was a finalist for a Colorado Book Award this year. Peake spoke with Ryan Warner in June. Lori, welcome to the program. Hi, Ryan. Thanks so much for having me. I'll say that uh, Sierra, like the other names in this book, uh, is a pseudonym. You met these children right after the storm, along with about 650 others. What exactly were you trying to figure out by following these children? Alice and I went to New Orleans very soon after the storm, and we initially wanted to understand and explore what was going on in the immediate aftermath. What did children need during the evacuation, the emergency response period? What was happening with their families and their schooling and their sheltering experiences and so forth? And after that initial 
field trip to the Gulf, we came back and we wrote a report and we reflected on what we had learned and who we had met. And we really committed and said, we want to follow these children and their families over the long term. And we want to understand how this disaster, which still stands as as the most costly and one of the most deadly in our nation's history, how is this disaster going to unfold in these young people's lives? And that that central question really set in motion what became a, a nearly decade-long study. Indeed, it's been a huge investment of time. And in a way, um, are, are these children still recovering today? Absolutely. And so we really, as we wrapped up the study and began writing the book, that was definitely something that we had to grapple with as scholars is to really ask ourselves what is recovery? What does recovery look like after a disaster of this magnitude? And can we think of Katrina even as a discrete event? Or is Katrina really now a, a marker in these children's lives that is definitely, it's definitely part of their their collective memory and their experiences? And we really think that for many of the children who are most severely impacted, that this is obviously going to continue to unfold in their lives for many, many, many more years to come and, and may even become a generational type of event where these memories are, are passed down across time and space. Give us an example of a child that comes to mind when you think of, and, and I suppose they, they may not be children anymore, uh, you know, some, some 10 years later, but uh, give me an example of a child you followed who who you think will be dealing with this into adulthood and and perhaps generationally so one of the children that Alice and I met soon after Katrina it, we call him Daniel in the book and Daniel was 12 years old when Katrina happened and he and his mother and his baby sister ended up in the Superdome for a period of time in New Orleans and then they were evacuated from the Superdome and they were in Baton Rouge in a shelter for some period of time and then they got on a bus and and they ended up in New York City, and then they came back to New Orleans, and then they ended up in California for a period of time, and then they came back to Baton Rouge, and then back to New Orleans, and back to Baton Rouge, and so much disruption in Daniel's life. Over time, he missed, we calculated, somewhere between about two and three years of schooling after the storm, where he just simply was not in school because of all of this movement and all of this disruption. And Daniel ultimately did graduate from high school, but he was 20 years old when he finally graduated high school. And, you know, this is something I actually just saw Daniel last week in New Orleans, and I talked to him for a long time about this. And he really talked about that, about how it affected his education, how it has affected his his memories and his his own ability to find stability in his life. And his story is an illustration of something you find in this book, which is that so many of the outcomes for these children depend on stable housing. If you don't have stable permanent housing, the question of education, the question of health, 
um, they're all just so intimately connected. You also wanted to dispel some myths with this book. And the first one really is about children as helpless victims. Uh, It seems that the truth is actually far from that, isn't it? You're right. One of the myths that we talk about is what we call the helpless victims myth. And this is where children are just cast as completely vulnerable and completely incapable in the face of extreme events. And then we contrast that helpless victims myth with really what seems like the opposite. It is sort of what we call the the resilience myth. And so this is the, the idea that children are somehow, you know, just that they're will be unaffected by disaster and they're like little red rubber balls that they'll just bounce back no matter what happens to them. And of course, the the reality is so much more complex and and dynamic than that. And, and many children, you know, they fall somewhere in between that. They may have some aspects of their lives that are indeed closer to that vulnerability angle. But then also children have many, many capacities. And so that's why when we started with that helpless victims myth, one of the ways that we tried to clear the the, the slate of that was to really document over time children's capacities. And we write about in the book the ways that children helped other children before, during, and after the disaster, the ways that they helped adults in their lives, Mm -hmm. and also the ways that children help themselves. And we think that's a really important contribution because so often children are overlooked, but they're they're so capable and there's so much they can do. Uh, Lori Peak is head of the Center for Disaster and Risk Analysis at Colorado State University. And with her co-author, Alice Fothergill, she's written Children of Katrina. It sums up a decade of learning um, about how children cope in disaster. And one of the girls that you follow, uh, McKenna, actually ends up in Denver. Her grandmother lived here, and she's still here, I understand. It took her quite a while, though, to adjust. You recorded an interview with McKenna, and I'll say there's another interview happening in the room at the same time, so you may hear a little background noise here. What were your grades like before the hurricane? My grades were good. My grades were real good. I was on this program called TOPS. You have to have a certain grade point average. And then, you know, when you graduate, they pay for whatever college you want to go to. And then when you came to Colorado, how were your grades once you got here? My grades dropped. My grades dropped. Why do you think like, that was? Like the pressure, the stress. Like you, the pressure because, you know, I'm like, all right, I'm in 11th grade, 12th grade, right around the corner. I have to get on my stuff, like, real quick. And then the stress because I had, I couldn't get in touch with any of my friends at first. Then I couldn't get in touch with my two sisters, my brother, and my three nephews. I couldn't get in touch with, like, some of my real daddy side of the family. She said her real daddy there because um, he left the family when she was just a baby. But it, it sounded like she was on such a strong trajectory before Hurricane Katrina and that even for someone who's really dedicated to studying um, and and doing well, this is just such an unmooring event. What, what would you like to say about McKenna and her adjustment in Denver? Yeah, Ryan, thank you for acknowledging that. And so one of the, the things that we write about in Children of Katrina is about this declining trajectory. And for the declining trajectory, these 
were children and youth who experienced simultaneous and ongoing disruptions in basically all aspects of their lives and their families, their schooling, their housing, their health and health care, their friendships, extracurricular activities, and so forth. And so many of the children who fit the declining trajectory, they were living very precarious lives before mm-hmm. Katrina happened. And Katrina just accelerated and exacerbated already difficult circumstances. But then you're right, there were children like McKenna who her life was was pretty darn good before Katrina. And she was saving for college and, and she was in a really good place and had really good friends, really supportive family along the Gulf Coast. And then what Katrina did was revealed essentially unrecognized vulnerability and set her on this declining path because Katrina was just so profound and so disruptive in so many lives. And so I think the the lesson, the central lesson of McKenna's story that we need to remember is that disasters on this scale can disrupt and damage children and families that aren't necessarily even vulnerable before the storm. And so we, of course, need to attend to those families. And so if you could change perhaps one thing about the response to Katrina... And, you know, maybe that's from a a government standpoint or a nonprofit standpoint. I I don't know. What would you change that you that most uh, affects outcomes? Oh, (laughs) that is that's the, the billion dollar question, isn't it? But I think given this question, what I might say is that it was the multiple and repetitive displacements that people experienced after Katrina and that uh, movement that we saw among children and families that then led to so many other issues. We mentioned Sierra in the introduction, who remembers the screaming the night of Katrina, who remembers the rising water levels. Uh, Sierra became quite an artist, writing poetry and songs, which helped in her own recovery. And you had her read a poem aloud that she wrote when she was 13. So that was two years after the storm. And she essentially addresses a bully after finding her voice. Hey, you! Yeah, you, the one in the corner, who teased me for being so quiet. Well, listen up. I have something to say. I found the courage to stand up for myself. I found the words to show who I am. I found the voice to speak my thoughts, my fears, my dreams, myself. So you, yeah, you, the one that scared me so quiet, pick up a pen. Find who you are. Let yourself be free through poetry. Let yourself be free through poetry, she says. If there's a theme to this book, Laurie Peake, it's um, that in the wake of disaster, you can empower children. You can make them feel like they have some some uh, influence over their own lives. W- would you agree with that? Yes, absolutely. And 
Sierra is such an interesting case and, and such an incredible girl and now young woman. She was 11 years old when Katrina happened. And Sierra fit this pattern that we talk about in the book that we call finding equilibrium. And so she, like many other children who who fit this trajectory, she ha- experienced an initial period of decline and disruption after Katrina. But then she was actually able to attain a new form of stability after the storm that that actually didn't even exist before the storm. She and her mother ended up in some ways in better and more stable circumstances after the disaster. And so you're right, Ryan. She absolutely represents what can happen, the positive rainbow, if you want to say say that about a disaster, even with all the dark clouds, there can be these silver linings that can open up. And Sierra really represents that. Ryan, I'll tell you, there were so many memorable moments in the course of doing this research, but Alice and I had the honor of attending Sierra's high school graduation, and we sat in that audience with hundreds of parents, many of them parents to so-called Katrina kids, who watched their children walk across that stage. And we turned to Sierra's mom, and she just had tears rolling down her face as she watched her daughter walk across that stage and accept her high school diploma. And it was such a moving moment. And and she really did find her voice. And it was through adults who really helped her to find that voice and got her the support she needed. So it was a, a, one of the really powerful and uplifting stories that we had the honor to document after that storm. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Sociologist Lori Peake spoke with Ryan Warner in June. Peake co-wrote Children of Katrina and directs the Center for Disaster and Risk Analysis at CSU. That's our show for today. Thanks for joining us. I'm Andrea Dukakis, and this is CPR's Colorado Matters. <laughs>